Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the whole the whole searching out of, of Israel, um, the the parsha of Shalach, and um, and the spies and and just uh, the eyes, the ears, just <laughs> everything. Um, so so let's go in. I just let's start with just trying to explain um, a very famous medrash. Um, uh, what I like about this is that it's there's something you just see the depth of of the of the chachamim of of our of our sages in this in just a sort of a an encapsulated way. Um, let me set the scene. Everybody knows that. Uh, that the, the Jews are at this point right on the border, basically, of, of going into Israel. And, and there's a, a desire among the people to search out the land before they go in. There, there's a sense that there's going to be this climactic battle in terms of taking over the land. And they, they want to know exactly, like, how are we supposed to approach it? So, so there's a, just a, a wealth of opinions of what, what was going on here, because it was this horrible misstep in, in terms of all of human history, it takes a huge left turn at this point. Um, just to retrace our steps for a moment, we had been in Egypt, everybody knows, and then we go to Mount Sinai, and not everybody knows this, we had been at Mount Sinai, we stayed there for a year. So we were encamped at Mount Sinai for a year, and now comes the, now comes the trip straight into Israel. So it's all good. This is basically going to be the end of days. Moshe is going to lead the Jewish people into Israel. And then comes what's known as the sin of the spies. Right? So that's what we're talking about right now. And Moshe himself, even though um, the official reason that Moshe doesn't go into Israel is because he hit the rock instead of speaking to it. That's a whole chapter in itself. Nonetheless, if you get into the commentaries you'll see that Moshe didn't escape unscathed by the whole incident of the spies. But that God didn't want to, God forbid, lump Moshe in with the spies. And so there's no mention of any wrongdoing on Moshe's part with it because God didn't want that association to exist. Nonetheless, though, if you dig into the commentaries, you see that he didn't go undamaged by this encounter. And that afterwards, Moshe, in fact, doesn't lead the generation into, into the land. And so, so, again, all of history takes this like massive left turn at this point, And we're still dealing with the implications of this event till this day. So we're going to discuss it in that context, what the challenge is for us in terms of our lives. But let's just sort of go into the sources and into the, the account a little bit more before we get there. So... So on the one hand, it seems that our sages instruct us that we shouldn't rely upon miracles, um, which, is, which is really good advice. You know, it's kind of like uh, in English we say, God helps those who help themselves. So, so the idea that we have to put real effort into every aspect of our lives, this is, this is a good thing. So seen in this way, the idea that the Jews are going to go and quote-unquote spy out the land, figure out what the normal way to, to sort of conquer the land of Israel is, is seen in a positive light, right? They're, they're not relying on a miracle. This is, this, is, this is proper. On the other hand, though, it, it leads to disastrous results, as we're going to see. And it seems to also suggest, not just sort of like a... Um, 
a kind of like, let's roll up our sleeves and do our part kind of thing, but a lack of trust in God. Because God, who has been guiding us amazingly throughout this entire process, certainly will guide us during this next chapter. So the whole idea that all of a sudden we're now not going to be relying on a miracle and everything like this, it, 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 it seems to be undermined by a, a genuine lack of faith over here. And this lack of faith is, 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 is fundamental. And let's go into it a little bit more, sort of like, more, more, more searingly, if you will. Because this is really kind of the heartbreaking dilemma of all of life right now. Which is the question, does God mean good for us or not? This is really the deep fundamental question that's sort of underlining this entire chapter. Which is, somehow in the minds of the people, or in our minds, even today, we're wondering, are we just walking into our slaughter? Are we just like going to arrive and we're just going to get wiped out? Right? Is, is God setting us up for some horrific fall? And, and, you know, the most heartbreaking response to this, in a way, is, is God's own response to this, which is that, you know what, I just can't do business with you anymore. You know, this generation's not going in. It's like, if you, if you actually think that about me, if you actually think that I mean bad for you, that I'm actually just setting you up to, to wipe you out, like that's, that, that's what you think of me, then this is, you know, then, then God says, then this isn't happening. It's just not happening. We're, we're calling this off. You know, we're hitting pause for a whole generation to pass before the next one can go in. So you see, we have... From this, we can learn something extremely essential about our lives and about our relationship with God, which is that, you know, we have our ups and downs, and sometimes we're better at serving God than other days. Sometimes we're more positive, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Other days, we just kind of follow our own desires and things like that. So we go up and down. But you know what? We're human beings, and, and that's... On some level, it's not optimal, but on some level, that's, that's to be expected. It doesn't excuse us when we do wrong, but nonetheless, those ups and downs are, are, are pretty standard. However, the more essential point is, do we think that God is out to get us? Do we think that God is not good? That's a whole other order of, of relationship. Once we get into that place, it's, it's, it, that's a game changer in terms of our relationship with God. And we see that very clearly from this whole incident with the spies. So, so if we're to get through life successfully, we must know that God means good for us. And not just that we need to know that, but God needs to know that we know that. Because here you see that God's response back to us from our seemingly not knowing that or suspecting otherwise about God, it's such a dramatic reaction from God that obviously he cares that we know that he's good and that mean, that he means good for us. Because otherwise the response is just wildly out of proportion. And if you think about it, if, you, if you're in a relationship with someone and then 
and, and you suspect that the other person, when you love that person, and the other person thinks that you actually hate them. But th- that's, how do you, how do you, what do you do with that relationship at that point? The person is so completely off. So, so, so we know that there were 12 spies. And we know that 10 of them bring back a bad report. And we know two of them bring back a good report. That's Yehushua and Caliph. And now I want to get into that medrash which, 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 which I mentioned earlier. Something so elegant, so, so, so simple but amazing. Which is, there, in order to ensure the success of Yehoshua, um, who is going to be Moshe's uh, successor, um, Moshe changes his name before the mission. And he adds the letter Yud to his name, and so Hoshea, his name Hoshea, becomes Yehoshua. Right? He will be saved. Right? So, so the, the, the Medrash asks a great question. I mean, the question itself is actually even amazing. Which is, where did that Yud come from? <laughs> that he added to, 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 to his name. Like, if you think about it, what does that question even mean? <laughs> like, 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 you know, like, just to be silly for a moment, you know, do you know that game of Wheel of Fortune where you, you get to buy a vowel? Like, you don't have a vowel, but you have to buy, like, you have to go out to get a letter? Like, what is this idea that Moshe didn't have access to this letter. Right? So we have to think about that more. That's maybe not for now. Maybe you can say, well, the Torah was already given, right? But the Torah is also responding in in flux to where we are at that moment. Right? Because remember, these events were not given at Mount Sinai yet. We had free choice. The core principles of the entire Torah were given at Mount Sinai, but these events were, rec- were recorded as they happened. So where we were in terms of our spiritual level, it's sort of like was how it got imprinted and written. Okay? So anyway, so the question is, where did that Yud come from? And the answer is amazing too. Remember, Sarai, Sarah, was originally named Sarai. She had a yud at the end of her name. But then Hashem changes her name and changes Sarai with a yud at the end to Sarah with a hey at the end. So all of a sudden there's an extra yud available. <laughs> right? So the Medr says God took that yud and gave it to Yehoshua. Right? Moshe used that yud for Yehoshua. That's the end of the Medrash. Now I'd like to explain that Medrash to my understanding. Okay? So... What do, so we know that this name change allowed Sarah to have children, right? So, so, so look at this letter Yud. Yud is an amazing letter because it's completely spiritual. It's a totally spiritual letter. Give you just a couple of examples. One is that um, it's the first letter of Hashem's holiest name, the Yud Kevavke. It begins with Yud. Remember, whenever we analyze that name, we're always going from top to bottom. Right? Yud is like the highest, the highest heights. 
And the bottom hay stands for this world, right? Sort of like, an, an, it's working on so many different levels, but it's also kind of like a map of the, of the universe as well. So, so Yud, of the Yud Kei Vav Kei, of Hashem's holiest name, Yud represents like the highest le- levels of spirituality, of holiness. Interestingly, the letter Yud is the only letter in the entire alphabet which floats above the line. It doesn't touch the line. So you see it actually in its, um, in its formation, how it's like beyond this world. It's not even touching the, the baseline of the page, you know? And if you think about what is, there's only one holiday, right? Um, in the Torah anyway, that starts with the letter Yud, and that's Yom Kippur, <laughs> right? Yom Kippur, we're like angels, it says, right? That's one of the reasons why we're not eating or anything like that. So you have this like Yud reflecting all of these different things. All right, so, so Sarai, when she was in this state, she's not having any babies. Because I'd like to suggest, and then, you know, thank God, I, I actually saw the thought I'm telling you. I, I saw it in the Megalia Mukos, right? So, so that, the, that, the, that the Yud represents this angelic quality about her. She was on such a high level, so she wasn't like in this world so much. So she's not having babies. So then the Yud gets changed to a He. He, we just said, remember, stands for this world. And now all of a sudden she's like, she has Yitzchak. All right? So, but the, that Yud is still available. Now listen to this. Moshe, meanwhile, Yehoshua, Hoshea, is, is an extremely humble person. He has to be um, insulated against the negativity, which was extreme, of the spies. In other words, just like Sarah had to be brought down, Yehoshua had to be brought up in order to be saved. So he needed the wings, so to speak, attached to that letter Yud in order to rise up and to be saved. So Hashem changes his name, adds that Yud, and changes his name to Yehoshua, and all of a sudden Yehoshua rises up and is able to be saved. Now, think about the dynamics of this for an extra moment, because the, the Kliyakar brings that that Yud, not that, 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 that the Yud that was added, I don't know that he references the Medrash that we just said, but if, what, he, what he says fits in totally with the Medrash. Yud, we know in Gamachi is the number 10. So, so there were, in terms of bringing the bad report, there were 10 negative spies. So in other words, he got this Yud, this 10, to counteract the 10 on the other side. Right? That's the Kliyakar. But it fits in totally with the idea that of, of the Medrash, of this, of this Yud coming from Sarai, being lifted up to guard against the 10. Right? So, also, you know, what's, what's so interesting too is we have a, we, we have a, a Klal, a foundation in the Gemara, that says that Hashem brings the refuah lefnei hamaka, the cure before the punishment. And so we just said earlier that Moshe himself is, is on some level damaged by this whole thing with the spies, and on some level that also stops him from bringing the Jews into the land of Israel. Right? So that means that he's going to need a successor. And so... So even before all of this negativity happens, right, 
Moshe is already giving this level, this, this letter Yud to Yehoshua, because Yehoshua is going to succeed Moshe. So in other words, he's already creating his successor, lifting him up and creating his successor before the need is there yet. So, so it works on that level as well, you know, just in terms of the, the guidance of the, the continuity of the Jewish people. Okay. Now I want to discuss a new thought, also related to the spies. The spies come back, and there's a very interesting debate between Rashi and the Zohar um, as, to, as to the fruits that they showed the Jewish people. And if you look into the text, what, the, what it says in the Chumash, it says that they showed them fruit. That's all it says, they. So it's a very unspecific pronoun. Okay, so from this unspecified pronoun, they, who's they, right, comes two completely different understandings of the fruit that they showed them. On the one side, Rashi brings that they brought back huge fruit. Both of them says that they brought back huge fruit. Rashi says that the ten, right, who bring back the bad report, brought back ten huge fruit in order to embarrass the land. In other words, in order to say, look how bizarre this fruit is, that's how bizarre the land is. In other words, it was brought in order to embarrass the land. The other opinion is that the fruit was actually brought back by Kalev and Yehoshua, the large fruit, in order to show the absolute greatness and magnificence of the land. Look how, look how amazing this fruit is. Now, interestingly, if you, it used to be when I was growing up, I don't know if it's still the case, the Israel Ministry of Tourism, the symbol is two people holding fruit, which goes according to the opinion that it was Kalev and Yehoshua showing the greatness of the land through the beauty of the fruit, right? Because it's the two of them, not the ten. So, it, like, you know, you see just even in a little symbol, like the learning that's behind it, you know? So, anyway... But I was thinking about this more. It's an interesting debate. But I thought to myself, you know, just because they're so radically different, it's, it's, it's like both extreme sides of the spectrum in terms of what actually is shot, what actually went on. I wondered, why did God present it in this way so that we don't know? What, right? Why did God present it in such an ambiguous way What's the purpose? Why did he say, they showed the fruit? Who's they? So, so what I'd like to suggest is the following. Because you and me right now, today, are being shown the fruit still. In other words, that ambiguity is there because this event is still going on right now. We're being shown the fruit. And we're trying, God wants to see... What is our reaction going to be to the report of the spies? Are we going to accept the Lashon Hara that's spoken about Israel? Or are we going to stand up and say, no, the land is good? Or are we going to say, no, the land is bad? You see, we have to understand that basically history 
on some fundamental, deeply mystical, but very real level, stopped at this moment. Because going into the land of Israel is completely synonymous with the redemption of the world. They're one and the same. Bless you. So this idea of are we getting into the land or are we not getting into the land, this is complete has total messianic implications. Right? Remember, even the people in Israel, Seder night, say, Lashana Ba be Yerushalayim. Next year we'll be in Yerushalayim. But the Seder itself is taking place in Yerushalayim. So why are they saying next year in Yerushalayim? Because what they're talking about, when we say in Yerushalayim, we mean with the Beis HaMikdash, with Mashiach. Right? Because that's, that's what Israel means. That's what Israel means. So, don't be fooled. Every time someone discusses Israel with you, every time you see a news report, this is the spies coming back and standing in front of you and seeing how are you going to react? Are you going to accept the Lashon Hara? Or are you going to say, no, the land is good. No, God is good. God means good for us. God wants to bring us to a good place. It's still going on. And our souls are still like hanging in the balance in terms of our reaction to this. And if someone says it's bad, we have to say, no, it's good. Right? That was part of the greatness of what Kalev and Yehoshua did. They said, they argued with the spice. They said, no, it's good. Right? Very important. Really important. All right, so now let's move on to the next point. You see something really incredible and beautiful, which is something I, it's, uh, Rashi brings it, and um, it's, uh, it, it's so fundamental. It's so fundamental. You see, it says that the spies spied out the land for 40 days, and so Hashem makes this calculation one year for each day. So because they spied out the land for 40 days, the decree is made that we have to wander in the desert for 40 years. That's, that's, the, that's the correlation. Okay? And um, one year for each day. Now, Rashi does a calculation. See, you know, the Gemara is so big. The Gemara is so big. There's certain questions that, and, and the Gemara is asking about every aspect of life, every aspect of life, including how, how far can a person walk in a day? That's a question that the Gemara asks and it answers. And it also gives you the measurements of the land of Israel someplace else. So Rashi brings a calculation. How long did it take them to, to you know, spy out the land, so to speak? And he says, well... 80 days. 80 days. Not 40 days, 80 days. And yet it says that they did it in 40 days. So from here you see something very wonderful, which is that we, we see this in different places in the Torah. There's a, there's a, a miracle. It's called Kfitzas Haderach, which means the shortening of the road. See it in various places in the Torah. Um, and... And so what happens is, is that Hashem miraculously 
enables a person to make a trip faster than they normally would be able to make it. So here you see that God allowed them to do the entire spying out of the land in half the time in order so that the decree of wandering shouldn't be 80 years in the desert. Now, I'm not sure we're communicating yet. It would be very easy for a person to say, why is Hashem being so harsh? 40 years in the desert? Are you crazy? Like, what's... It's so terrible. You're so mean, God. Right? But at the very moment that God is bringing down this decree, when we get behind the scenes, we see that God absolutely was doing it in the most chesedic fashion, the kindest way. He chopped it down miraculously. He made a, a whole miracle in order for it to be better for us. So at the time of what appears from the outside to be the harshest of judgments, you actually see the love and kindness of Hashem operating behind the scenes. Right? This is an amazing thing, and this is all going on while the people are thinking, God is bringing us into the land to wipe us out. Meanwhile, God is working miracles in order to make it good for us. So, there's so many lessons from the spies, you know? You know, I heard from Reb Shlomo a couple of teachings on this, which, you know, have just kind of just carved their ways into my, my mind, my soul, you know? One of them is, he said in the name of the Zohar that the spies looked at the land and they saw rivers of blood coming out of the land. And they saw every tragedy that was ever going to happen to the Jewish people, except they didn't see one thing, that it was all going to happen because of them. And a, just a devastating teaching. Devastating. You know? Another teaching that he said was that they looked into the heavenly bank account, that's the phrase that he used, the heavenly bank account of the Jewish people, and they saw that we didn't have enough merits in order to enter into the land. But what they didn't see was that God could, was going to give it to us as a gift. Wow. You see, a lot of times we think, you know something, I'm unworthy. And you're not being humble. We're not being humble. We're being accurate. We are not worthy. But you know what? That doesn't mean that God can't give it to us as a gift. And in fact, when Moshe Rabbeinu is praying to go into the land, famously, in Parshas V'yashanan, bless you, which is, which is V'yashanan, which is 515 in Gamatria, and they say that Moshe Rabbeinu davened 515 prayers to enter into the land, and the Vilna Gon says 515 different prayers, right? Which is, that in itself is an amazing teaching, which teaches us that we have to change up our prayers all the time. Even if we're praying for the same thing, we have to find new angles on it. We have to challenge ourselves to find new angles on it, different ways of expressing it. Because A, it will clarify our, our own souls, and B, it will keep our relationship with God in a, in, a, in, a, in a very real, alive way. 
right? So, so Moshe Rabbeinu, again, even though he has more merit than anyone who ever lived, he asks for God, he asks to be entered into the land as what's called a matnas chinam, a free gift. He doesn't rely on this merit. Because there's just this amazing secret, basically, that's being revealed here. That you can hit a brick wall, and it's a genuine brick wall, but then you say, God, please just do it as a gift. And then God can do it as a gift. You know? So this is, this is these are so many different dynamics going on. Um, so now let's go further. You see something which, which to me is like really epic. And um, God, God says to us, after the decree comes down that we're not going to the land, that this whole generation is going to die out before we go in, God says, when you get into the land, here's the mitzvah that you're going to do. You're going to do the mitzvah of challah. which is so beautiful because we just basically just like Kaviyocho, God doesn't have any physicality, but so to speak, we just slapped God in the face, right? And God now just goes into this amazing cheerleader mode, like in order to give us strength. And he says, when you go into the land, you know, because at this point, what, what is our greatest fear at this point is that we're, not gonna, we're never going to get into the land. It's never going to happen. So God doesn't say, if you get into the land. He says, when you get into the land. Right? Which is, now this is God himself talking. In other words, the relationship, okay, there's a setback, but the relationship is still on track. The relationship is never going to end. Right? Because, listen, the only thing that any of us has in the world is God. Everything else, God should bless us and we should have all the blessings and all the good things and everything good that we have, we should continue to have and we should have more of it. But the reality is anything can be taken away. Everything can be taken away except one thing, our relationship with God. That can never be taken away in this world or the next world. That is the foundational thing. That is the only thing ultimately that's real. Right? And I'm saying that not in, I hope, a depressing way. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that just in, in, hopefully, to give us ultimate clarity. And so that we, we understand in our lives what we have in terms of God. We have the, the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate thing that will never go away. In this world, in the next world, never, ever, ever, ever go away. So if you try to think in your own life, like in terms of prioritizing, What's most important? I'll tell you clearly, what's most important is your relationship with God. Nothing is going to be more important than that. Then God will tell you, okay, you've got to be nice to people. You've got to make sure people like you. Right? So now it's sort of like, oh, okay, so now I get it. I'm just going to love God, and I don't really have to care about anybody because it's all about God. I just heard this guy say it this Sunday morning. He just said it. <laughs> right? Now I can be a jerk. Finally, I have permission to be a big jerk. No, the opposite. <laughs> the opposite. 
Because what does God want from you? God wants you to love people and do good things and make the world a better place and all the above, right? But it's all within the context of, of, of your relationship with God. See, interestingly, in Pirkei Avos, it lists a whole bunch of things, right? Different ways of connecting with God. One of the things it says is, love God, right? Okay. Now you would think, or I would think, that includes pretty much everything. And then it says, love his creations. Well, if I love God, don't I love his creations? No. No, because there are a lot of people who love God, and they're really not hugely nice people. You know, so from this you see that the, that, the, that the sages felt it necessary to make loving his creations a separate category on the checklist. You see that just because you love God doesn't mean that you love his creations. You have to also make that a priority. So, so it's not a given. It's not a given. So Hashem says... Hashem says that when you go into the land, you're going, you, you, there's this mitzvah called challah, meaning to say when you bake bread and you're making the dough, remove a portion of the dough, and that's a gift for the Kohen. Now, what's so interesting about this is that the, the, the mitzvah, the obligation to remove dough from challah is not just in the land of Israel, it's even outside the land of Israel. There's certain mitzvot that are really just for the land of Israel, but they're not, we're not obligated outside the land. But this isn't one of them. So, so the language is very interesting. So God didn't have to say, when you go into the land. He could have just said, okay, here's a new mitzvah for you. It's called challah. Make sure you take out some dough when you're making bread. So in other words, God went out of his way to tell us, when you go into the land, you just found a context to tell us, you're going in, don't worry. You're going in, don't worry. In other words, it's, it sounds like it's part of the thought about challah, but we see halakhically it's not part of the thought about challah. It's just God outright, openly reassuring us, period. Now I want to just personally kind of get into this a little bit more on a deeper level, just just tell you how this passage speaks to me, okay? You see, there's a destiny to creation. There's a destiny to the world. And as um, they say in, you know, cup shows, we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. Either way, it's going to happen. The, the world is going to become perfected. The world is going to get to the next era of the evolution of spirituality of the world. Human beings are going to reach the next stage of our evolution. Spiritually speaking, the, the, the blockage on our heart is going to be removed. Right? This is God's promise to us. Meaning to say that human beings, which are, you know, have an aspect of God in them, right? This divine soul. It's like the, the body is a bit of a prison. The body is like, totally like masking on some levels the potential of the soul. But it's not always going to be like that. There's going to come the next phase in terms of the evolution of the world where human beings are just going to be, whoa! I mean, we're like that right now. We just don't realize it. That's, that's sort of the tragedy of the human condition. 
we're, we're all like superstars. It's, it's ridiculous, like the scale of a human being. Remember, there are five levels to the soul. Three are inside of you, two are beyond you, right? It's all one continuum, but exist outside your body. And they go all the way up to the Kiseya Kavid, all the way to the top of heaven, which means every person, just in terms of, if you were to take a tape measure, literally goes from the Kisei of HaKavit, the, the top of heaven, all the way down to the earth. So, so already, that's the actual reality of the dimensions of each one of us. So we're already absolutely epic in scale. We don't relate to each other like that. We don't relate to ourselves like that. But each one of us is literally super gigantic. So, so when we talk about the next stage of the evolution of humanity, it's, it's not some new idea that's going to be thrown out. Remember, Shlomo Melech says famously in Kahelis, there's nothing new under the sun. Like the rabbis take that very, very seriously, what that means. That means that the, that the nature of reality isn't going to be like wiped out and a new reality is going to come in. All of these things that we're talking about are all here right now. It's just going to become revealed in an open way. So in other words, when it talks about that our heart is going to turn from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, right? That the, that the heart itself is going to be circumcised. What it's talking about is the huge potential of the human being, which is already in place, is going to become revealed. So when God says you're going to enter into the land of Israel, when, not if, when you enter into the land of Israel. So, so meanwhile, we've just experienced, and again, the implications of this are, are resounding to this day right now. When we experience this enormous setback, not a small setback, an enormous catastrophic setback, which is the whole sin of the spies, right? We can think, well, you know, everything that I personally desired is basically more or less not happening. So, so how do I deal with that, you know? And, and yet God is saying, hey, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a wider picture here, and there's a more there's a, there's, a, there's a bigger destiny. You know, God has an amazing individual relationship with us, but there's also a wider destiny that's being played out. And God is assuring us that that is 1,000% still on track. That never stops being on track. And all of us have this amazing relationship with what that destiny is. So now, let's go a little bit deeper. You see... There's, there's a question you can ask, which is that, you know, there's so many mitzvahs. Why did God pick the mitzvah of challah, of all things? Like, you know, like when you're, when you're making bread, in order to give us this amazing reassurance that the destiny of the world is still on track, right? When you enter into the land. And so there's, a, there's an interesting connection that, that, that kind of came to me, and I'd just like to share it with you. You know, when, 
When human beings are created, there's a, uh, a verse, a pasuk, um, it's uh, in Breshis, chapter 2, um, verse 7. It says, And Hashem God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he blew into his nostrils the soul of life, and man became a living being. Right? So that's, that is the verse of the creation of human beings. The verse, right? So if you look at the last three words, Ha'adam l'nefesh chaya, right? And a, a person became a living being. The, the sages point out something very interesting. The, the first three letters of that phrase, hey lamid ches, ha'adam l'nefesh chaya. If you go in reverse, Chaya is ches, l'nefesh is lamid, ha'adam is hey. So, chet, lamid, hey, spells chala. <laughs> and that God, when he formed us, he sort of took the earth and he kneaded the earth, and then he blew into it, that, that the actual process of making a human being resembled making bread. But here you see that a human being and bread are compared when to the same. So when God is giving us this incredible reassurance that the destiny of the world is on track, he's also speaking about challah, which means he's speaking to every one of us individually as well. And so now, again, I'm just speaking from my heart right now, you know, so, you know, as they say, you can take it or leave it. But Everything that happens to us individually is a fixing for our souls. We might not like it. In fact, we might actively dislike it. But there is something actually, if you think about it, reassuring and beautiful, knowing that seen in this context, everything is actually a success, even a setback. Because if everything coming from God is fixing my soul, that means that I'm, I'm actively fixing my soul every step of the way throughout my life. And if I was brought into this world in order to fix my soul, I mean, that's certainly one of the primary reasons why each of us is brought in. If I'm brought into this world to fix my soul, and I'm being told that every single thing that's happening is fixing my soul, then, you know what? I'm winning. <laughs> I'm winning. I'm winning. Again, we, like, to get back to the cop shows, right? We can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. We can certainly make it easier for ourselves by making the right decisions. That doesn't, that doesn't require sometimes the, the, the intensive work and the difficulties and the emotional pain, right? So a lot of it is in our hands how that fixing manifests itself, right? But... Either way, and, and some of it's in our hands and some of it's not in our hands. Some of it is already past life stuff. Some of it is already stuff that's going to be for our children and grandchildren. We don't know. Our, our lives are out of order. Our lives are out of order. We don't know. But nonetheless, there's this amazing reassurance when God says, when you enter the land, not if, but when you enter the land. In other words, when success comes down, and it's coming down in the broadest way, Here's a mitzvah about challah. Oh, here's about making yourself, right? Wait, I'm challah. Oh, you're, you're correlating 
the fact that everything is going to work out with, with, with the creation of you and me. So it's not just the grand plan, it's, all the, it's also the individual plan. You know, when challah gets kneaded, right? It kind of gets, you pull it in half, <laughs> right? You slap it back down. Like the kneading process is like, you know, you pound it, right? You, you, literally, you literally punch it. You literally punch it. When, it. when it rises up, right? Remember, what is, um, what is uh, leavening, like chametz, compared to like ego, right? So when the challah rises up, you're, it's, it's actually called punching the challah, right? You literally punch it back down. Like, what does it take, what does it take for, like, a human being to really become, like, you know, a piece of challah? You know, it reminds me, and I know I've shared it with you before, but one of my favorite teachings from Reb Shlomo, he says, you know what a, you know what a grape has to go through to become wine? Right? How much it has to be stepped on? Right? And he says, everyone loves you when you're a finished product. Everyone loves you when you're a grape, and everyone loves you when you're wine. He says, but who loves you when you're in between? He says, those are your real friends. Right? And, and, and I added to that, and I said, you know what? Right now the world is in between. So who loves, who loves God when the world is in between? Before Mashiach is here. Right? Before the world has reached its level of perfection. Those are God's real friends. Right? So... So I guess maybe we can start to wrap it up. I just um, just share one last thought. Uh, you know, it came to me a couple of years ago, I think. But I, I I noticed something. You know, like there's two parshas that sound similar. This one is called Shlach Lecha, and then we also have Lech Lecha. So they, they sound, they're thematically linked because they're both talking about journeys, right? So we know that this, this Parsha, Shlach Lecha, is, ends terribly. Um, we know Lech Lecha, with Abraham Avinu being commanded to go into the land of Israel, Ends fantastically, right? That's that's a triumph. So they're really, you know, grammatically they look almost the same. Shlach lecha and lech lecha. On the other hand, though, interestingly, they're like opposites because one ends terribly, one ends great. So I thought to myself, what if you take the numerical value of both and you subtract one from the other? <laughs> like, what are you left with? You know. And the answer was, like, when I did the math, I, like, almost fell down. Because you'll you'll see, it's like an incredible thing comes out of this. So, so, Shlach Lecha, the one that ends badly, right, that's that's 388. Okay? Lech Lecha is 100. So you subtract them and you get 288. Now listen to this. That number, maybe you know it, maybe you don't. The Ari HaKodesh says that the number of sparks that have to be uplifted in the world from the moment of the beginning of creation, from the shattering of the vessels, the number of sparks that fell that have to be lifted up is 288. 
So, so let's, let's just make sure beyond the pyrotechnics of just how that worked out, just understand that we're getting something practical out of that, that we understand what's going on there. So we have something called a concept, very central concept to, to Judaism, called being L'Shem Shemayim, doing something for the sake of heaven. So, so a lot of, so much of, like I know the Ishbitzer and all the Rebbes talk about this, clarifying one's soul. You have to clarify your soul. Okay? That's so much of the work of this, this world and this life is clarifying your soul. So when you're clarifying your soul, one aspect of that is to, to, to make sure you understand when you're being L'Shem Shemayim, when you're doing something for the sake of heaven, and when you're not doing something for the sake of heaven. Okay? You have to kind of figure it out, you know? So, so the spies were like a real mixed bag. They were partially L'Shem Shemayim, partially for the sake of heaven, now, and partially not for the sake of heaven. So what are the two opinions regarding the spies? Because there are people who really want to defend the spies, by the way. You know, so what's that, what's that point of view, that they were really doing good stuff? So that is that they said, hey, look, we have it really good in the desert right now. God is feeding us. We've got man, bread is coming down. So we've all got, like Parnosa, we've all got our livelihood. We've got water. We've got amazing Torah from Moshe Rabbeinu. Like we're learning Torah. We're just basically camped out. No one's, for the most part, bothering us. This is a good situation. We don't want to go into the land because we've been told when we go into the land, the miracles are going to stop. We're going to have to become farmers. There's like intense amounts of labor. It's going to distract us from our divine connection. We're going to get very material, you know, oriented. Like, let's stay in the desert. This is a good thing. So they bring back a bad report. Why? In order to maintain this amazing, you know, spiritual experience. But God doesn't just want us to just be... God wants us to live in this world. God wants us to bring down the light of spirituality into this world and to reveal God here. Not just to check out from this, from the challenges of this realm. God gives us, on purpose, challenges in this realm and bodies and desires that want to do every which way and every which thing in order to bring out the light of God and the spirituality in this world. Not to escape it or to deny it. Right? So, but here you see a very positive intention from the spies. And yet, there's another school of thought that says, hey, they were just out after their own honor. Because they were like big shots, head of the tribes here. You know, they were very big people, like a couple million people in the desert. You know, and you've got, these are 10 leaders. This is, these, they were like, you know, they were like presidents or prime ministers or, you know, they were very important, extremely important. And they felt that they were going to lose their position once they got into the land. So no one likes to lose a big job, right? So they're kind of guarding their own covet, their own honor. So in that version, they're totally like, they're, they're like totally doing the wrong thing. So, so which is it? You've got within the spies... Part is L'Shem Shemayim, part is not L'Shem Shemayim. 
Part is for the sake of heaven, part is not for the sake of heaven. How do you clarify it? So this is, let's return back to the Skamatria now. So Avraham Avinu, Abraham, when he gets the Lech Lecha mission, that's 100% L'Shem Shemayim. So that's the number 100. So let's go into the spies, which is 388. And by removing the Lech Lecha, the total L'Shem Shemayim, what are we left with mathematically? We're left with just that part of them which is not L'Shem Shemayim. That part which has to be uplifted. And what do we get? 288, which is what the Ari says, is all the sparks that have to be left, lifted up. All the aspects of the world which are not L'Shem Shemayim in us is all of a sudden revealed. Which means what on a practical level? Which means that before we do something, we have to ask ourselves, which part of us is not L'Shem Shemayim? And then we have to address that and we have to clarify that and that will be uplifting of sparks in a very real way. Now let's take it even one more step further to be super practical. Rashi brings a very famous uh, thing and, and, and everyone has the same question about this. So I saw an answer. I forgot who said it, but, but I saw an, a, an answer to this and it's just a very nice, simple answer. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense which is it says that they returned the way they came. The spies returned, meaning they returned with their bad report, the way they started off. In other words, they had started off going to give a bad report. They already had it in their minds that they were going to bring back a bad report when they left. And yet, we know famously, it says that they were old tzaddikim. They were like great people. So how could they be great people and then they're starting out the journey already wanting to bring back a, a bad report. It, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, that's an unreconcilable contradiction. So the answer that I saw, which is utterly simple, but just beautiful, says no. When they were appointed, they were total tzaddikim. When they started the mission, they had already blown it. Before they left, they had already blown it. In other words, there was a gap between the time that they were appointed and the time that they actually set out and tried to figure out, okay, what's going on? What are the implications of us going? <laughs> All right, we're, we're going. Fantastic. This is great. Okay, wait a second. Now, what does this mean exactly? What does this mean exactly? See, you know something? So what does this mean in all of our lives? A lot of times we get a good idea. But then when you start out to start to implement the idea, you've got to check back in with yourself. So I heard in the name of the Netziva Shalom, the Slonim Rebbe, that their big mistake was they severed their connection with Moshe Rabbeinu. They severed their connection with the Tzaddik of the generation. You see, you see, this is what happens. This is an insight into human psychology. Once you decide what you're going to do, at that point, you've completely rationalized all the bad. See, you work through the process. And that working through the process, you, so to speak, matter yourself, you allow yourself, you permit yourself all sorts of wrongdoing at that point. This is human nature. This is called rationalization. So it's at the point after the process of rationalization that you must check back in with the tzaddik who will say, hey, wait a second. 
And that's why we need relationships with like holy people. Because we'll get the idea and we'll get a good idea. Then we'll work it out and we'll have completely mucked it up during, <laughs> during our working it out process. So you check back in before you start, as you're about to start, you check back in. Here's what I'm thinking. And then the tzaddik or the holy person or the rav or whoever it is can then tell you, okay, wait a second, wait a second, take one step. Just make sure you're emphasizing this. And then you can get back to the good place of being l'shem shemai. And you can escape the human condition of constantly just sort of like, well, just kind of making it right for your immediate needs, which sometimes can skew a person. Okay, so the good news is we're all going to get there. And the good news is that whatever happens, we're, we're winning. But, but Hashem should really, really bless us that, that it, it shouldn't be the hard way, but it should be the easy way. That we should experience the sweetness. That we should really have that relationship with, with people who have like clear eyes and clear souls who can direct us in the proper way. And that really, we should really just see the light of Hashem revealed. Amen. How do you explain 288 sparks to be raised? I mean, there's, it seems like there should be millions. Yeah, so they say that those, each of those has been split into evermore, you know? So it's like sort of concepts? Like well, sparks as a concept? Like, yeah. If we tap into like a certain kind of spark and everybody that connects to that kind of idea is raising it? You know, there is, there is something to that, you know? Like, it says that, um, like, when a, person, when a person does tshuva, that there are other people who are connected to those sparks, that they actually, in their tshuva, they raise up other people as well. And in fact, it says that, the, um, that Mashiach, that a true leader of the Jewish people, I don't know if it says Mashiach specifically, it might, carries a bag of like scorpions or snakes over his shoulder. And what that means is, is that, that basically as, as they do tshuva, they're able to lift up all the like lowest elements as well. So th- there is like this phenomenal interconnectivity between our souls, which we have almost, really almost no appreciation of. You know? And... Um, but it's very, very real. It, it's, it's really real, you know? So, ask a question? Huh? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. I had a... And the other question is, like, I feel like for some reason I was alive when, like, the Balshemta was, like, there was, there's, like, this feeling of, like, there is a possibility of being next to a holy person and just being next to them is, like, godliness is revealed. And it's more on a mystical level. It's not like going to a person, to a, a great learned person, and saying, "Well, what do you think? Should I do it this way or should I do that way?" And then they go calculate it through their Torah knowledge. Right. It's more of like just being in a presence just raises that level of awareness that the answers sort of come from within and from without. Like it's not necessarily. Yeah. 
that relying on the other person's calculation is more it's already internalized that okay so so it's both it's both there is an a uh, and I've experienced this too I'm sure I hope we all have by being around someone like a Rebbe or something like so that the question like, is do you, you know yeah. somebody well, I know I had, I, well, the, who's alive today? You know, I would say the umption of a Rebbe. You know, it would really be good to see him, you know. He's really amazing. He's amazing. Um, he's in Israel. He's in, he does speak English, actually. He's in Bayit Vagan in Israel. He's, you know, he's like not even in, he's like hardly in this world, you know. so that's what I'm talking about. Like people that are hardly in this world. Yeah. I, I, I did. I mean, it's a, these things are very personal, you know right. what I mean? Like, you, you know, because there are all these different soul roots and soul connections. So, you know, it's like, who were you standing next to at Mount Sinai, basically, you know? So, you know, <laughs> yeah. So I have a more practical question. So when you were talking about, like, you know, something that happened that you might see as bad or still feel as bad, but it's like Hashem helping you to, like, get on track with fixing your soul. So, that totally makes sense, but a person is still dealing with the emotional fallout sure. or whatever kind Absolutely. of fallout, yeah. and that tends to really yeah. compete yes, totally. with the good thing totally. that, you know, you realize, oh, okay, well, I can see totally. how yeah. you put me on, like, yeah. the dera, right. really was. Right. So, but, like, how do you deal with that? Like, you still struggle with, like, the, yeah. the pain of it, or the, like, right. how did I let this happen, or whatever, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is a very big question, but, but the, the bottom line is, is that to the extent that, see, a person has to be real. This is, this is, this is the thing that, you know, when we talk about being besimcha, being happy and seeing the good and everything like that, these are very essential teachings and essential truths, but a person also has to be real. So if they are experiencing pain, they have to be able to have a real genuine outlet to express that because otherwise they're not being real and God wants something real, you know? Otherwise it's just a mask and there's a level to that because, listen, you know, a, a, a smile is, is holy and it's, it's better than a frown to walk around with a frown. But in the right context, a person has to be able to speak with God and to express to God their, how grateful they are for everything, but also their heartbreak as well. And, and, and because, because ultimately, if a person wants to connect with God, if they're speaking about everything that's going wrong with their life to everyone except God, then it, the, something is off. They have to speak directly to God and express it to God but at the same time, they have to express it in a, in, in a way that also is acknowledging to God all the blessings that they're receiving as well. Because, you know, God says, you know, do you want me to show you the list of everything that I'm doing for you right now? You're, you're upset about this? Okay, I understand that you're upset about this. But can we also look at the list for a moment too? <laughs> you know? so, so being real is not just, okay, now, ha, ah, finally it's about me. Finally, I can dump on you, God. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like being real also. If a person wants to be real, a person also has to be real about everything that's going right. That's equally real, or perhaps more real. 
but I think that that primary relationship, that, it, that, that, that that's one way of, of doing it. Um, but, but the, ultimately, the way that the sort of the bottom line is, is that we have to train ourselves. And for some people, this is easier to do than others. For, for a lot of us, it's really almost a Herculean task to be able to do this. But we have to see life through the lens of what's going right. We have to. And again, that's something that for a lot of us, it's like you, you, you might as well ask me to lift a car over my head <laughs> than to see life through what's going right, you know? But believe me, the more you work at it, the more you'll be astonished about how much is going right. You know, I'll just tell you, just as an aside, I was learning with um, someone, uh, a real a real Talmud Chacham, a real Torah scholar, and he, um, his father is a great scientist, like really one of the great scientists in the world, and he, he heard from a colleague of his father's who was, you know, investigating cancer, was researching that, and said that the more he re- researched it, the more he was absolutely amazed that anything goes right. Like, honestly blown away that anything goes right. So with that perspective, you know, you you look at, wow, nothing has to be going right. You mean, actually, all of this is going right? Unbelievable, really. And the thing is, is that ultimately we're the beneficiaries of that approach. You know, it's sort of like a person can take the attitude. It's like, okay, I'll smile. All right, you know, you owe me, by the way. You know? But we're, we're the beneficiaries of that. We, we, we are the beneficiaries of that. First of all, we're less of a drag on other people, which is very nice. They'll like us more, right? Which is nice to be liked. And secondarily, we'll actually enjoy the good things that are happening right now. You know, because there's a lot of good that's happening right now. That, that we're so busy being annoyed, right, that we're not tapping into, you know. I've just gotten like 50 texts. So let me just... <laughs> Did you say that the second um, story that you heard from Prabhupada after the purpose of blood one, it was like... The second one was that, um, uh, yeah, that, um, that the spies looked at into the heavenly bank account of the Jewish people, and they saw that we didn't have enough merits to enter into the land, right? And what Reb Shlomo said was that what they didn't realize was that God was going to give it to us as a gift. And was that, was that the, yeah. and, and there's, in fact, there's a whole book from Rebbe Nachman called The Treasury of Unearned Gifts. Mm. And you can look into that if you want to know more on the subject. It's all in the Torah, it's all in V.S. Chanan, this whole idea. Because Moshe Rabbeinu asks for a, a matnas chinam to get into the land, a free gift. And so there's this concept of in Shemayim, in heaven, there's a treasury of unearned gifts. And God, God can basically... You know, our, 
our path sometimes, if God desires, can just sort of like be short-circuited, like, you know, in a good way, like, you know, in shoots and ladders, where it's just sort of like, okay, well, here's a ladder. <laughs> you know, like all of a sudden you're getting to this place much faster. It, it can happen. And it, it happens actually probably all of the time. You know? So, so it's something worthy of praying for. You know, because if a person prays for it in the right way, the, what does it mean to, to, to pray for it in the right way? Is first of all to understand that A, that God can even do it if he wants to. And B, um, it gets us a little bit away from the idea of, I deserve this, I earn this, you have to give this to me. You know, because what do we know really? I mean, it, that, it takes kind of like the, 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 the stench, if you will, of our own kind of self-congratulatory kind of outlook. Which isn't to say, just to be very clear, that it's not something, if you work hard to achieve something, that that's not something to be proud of and actually to, you know, to, 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 to mention to God, if, if you feel that way. You know what I mean? There's, it's not inherently arrogant. The opposite. One should feel good about all the good things that they're doing. But if they're stuck, they should understand that there's a way to say to God, you know something, put all that aside, just because you're great, you know? So, just another approach, yeah. Uh, kind of uh, on, on those lines also, and sort of a technical question yeah. about prayer. Right. When you're... Uh, when you recommend when you're praying for for something, say uh, like soulmates for people or parnasa for people, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you recommend putting yourself at the head of the prayer or at right. the tail of the prayer? In right. other words, yeah, do you right. say Hashem right. first, you know, bring me my soulmate right. and bring X Y Z da da da, or you know the opposite, bring X Y Z and get a whole list, which so has more. Yeah, so that there's a, that's a there's a classic teaching on that. They say there's definitively, definitively to put yourself at the end. At the end. At the end, definitively. It's not even a question on that. Yeah. Which is, you know, the, and, and because, you know, a person is... is just think about, um, like, uh, let's say um, you have a funnel, right? Now, um, so you want to pour something into yourself, right? Now, which side of the funnel, the wide side or the narrow side do you pour the water into? The wide side, not the narrow side. So if I'm just praying for myself to begin with, I'm trying to bring down Shefa from heaven, Bracha, blessing from heaven, but I'm just thinking about myself. So I'm pouring it into this tiny little hole. <laughs> right? But if you reverse it and I'm praying for everyone, I'm creating this big wide thing, right? Then it can go all the way down to me. So you can tier specificity. You can start off like, may everyone on planet Earth find your soulmate? May everyone in like Indonesia. If you want. If you want. Absolutely. 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 Because you're just, because at that point it's just um, what we call um, expanded consciousness. You're, you're expanding your consciousness. And then the more expanded our consciousness is, the happier we are. Because we're 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 uh, we're aware that we're even though each one of us is beyond special, but when you kind of realize, wow, we're in this sea of specialness, then it kind of takes some um, some of the emphasis off of our ourselves. Like you know, a lot of times, um, the 
a lot of times the, the least happy people in the world are the ones who are asking themselves constantly, am I happy? Or why, am, why aren't I happy? Right? And what the problem is is that they have, um, not necessarily consciously or through their own wrongdoing, but they've so directed the spotlight on themselves and their own thoughts that it's, a, it's almost a recipe for unhappiness. You know, the more you can think about other people, it's not just, oh, it's a mitzvah and then you'll get reward. It's, it's beyond that. It's just, just in terms of just the nature of how people work. The more you can direct the spotlight outside of yourself, somehow, somehow the more light gets refracted back to you. You know, it's just, yeah, yeah, sure. About the process of rationalization. Yeah. So I remember your father right. was a psychologist. And he talked about when you start to rationalize and then you get to the point where let's check in with right. Rome, which is important. Right. So is there more about the psychology of rationalization that you know about? Well, I know that the Rambam talks about the um, self-love. And self-love is, is one of his ways of saying, as, as I understand it, rationalization. In other words, that a person so gives themselves the abundant benefit of the doubt in all circumstances. <laughs> you know what I mean? Can you imagine you're in a fight with someone, right? And let's say you're in a fight with someone and you say, um, okay, look, I really want there to be peace between us. And the person says, yeah, I want there to be peace between us too. So the person, so you say, you know what, let's go to an impartial observer, right? Um, who we both love and trust. And that, that person will decide, do you agree? And the person says, I agree. And then you say, okay, that's me. I'm going to decide. <laughs> this is what we do all of the time. This is what we do all the time. This is called self-love. This is called self-love. I'm being totally honest. So the Rambam says that self-love is so great that it blinds us. It literally blinds us to, you know, I mean, how many times have I had work to do that I need to do? An assignment that's late, I'm embarrassed to say. And, you know, I could really just hammer myself and just make myself drink some coffee, just, you know, put my feet in a bucket of ice water. You know, I'm being serious. You know, my, 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 my wife's grandfather put his feet in a bucket of ice water and in order to stay awake at night to learn Torah. We'd learn Torah 16 hours a day. And that was not uncommon. But really, feet in a bucket of ice water in the middle of the night. And, but this was not uncommon. This was not uncommon. So, or you can go... Or I could just go to sleep. Yeah, I'm kind of tired. Yeah. They'll get it eventually. Or not. Not's good too, right? You know, so that's, that is called self-love. Self-love blinds you. Okay. Stop. Yeah.